Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. Hello and welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Pat Leahy and I'll be filling in for our regular host Hugh Linehan for the next few weeks. Well, as Ireland lounged about, looking out at the rain over the long weekend, Boris Johnson was fighting for his political life in Westminster, where he faced a vote of no confidence from his own Conservative MPs on Monday night. A little later, we'll discuss the result of that vote and try to figure out what happens next with our London editor, Dennis Staunton. But first, to discuss matters a little closer to home, I'm joined by my colleagues on the political staff, Harry McGee and Jack Horgan-Jones. Hello, fellas. Hi, Pat. How are you? Hi, Pat. Well, the doll is off this week and the Taoiseach is in Strasbourg today, where he has already addressed the European Parliament before many of us had eaten our breakfasts. So there's a slight lull in the political temperature for a few days. But the sound of thunder rolling closer as the government faces far-reaching decisions on several issues is unmistakable. Many of them are around the central questions that no government can avoid. Where to spend? How much to spend? how to prioritise your spending and how to pay for it. Jack, I'll turn to you first. Increasingly, the focus around government circles seems to me to be mentioning childcare and there's suggestions that significantly more public funding will be required for some sort of a childcare package in the autumn budget. What are you hearing around that? Well, it's interesting. I was talking to one government figure yesterday who made the point that around this time, Last year, all the chat was about the race between the vaccines and the variant. And now the race is between the ministers and the money as they seek to kind of outdo each other early doors in terms of making political commitments, which can end up being quite costly. And the most obvious one that um, has surged to the forefront of political debate uh, in the last week or 10 days has been uh, political commitments which were made, I suppose, around the time of budget 2022, um, but have been now expanded on uh, to reduce the cost of childcare uh, to to households up and down the country, which is obviously one of the the largest costs that that many uh, families with young children face. Um, so there's been, um, in the first instance, that the, the Tonishta was out on this, uh, proclaiming that it would form a centrepiece of the budget and then not to be outdone. Uh, the, the actually relevant minister in the portfolio, Roderick O'Gorman, made similar noises in the early part of this week. Um, and, and really, the, the, the pressure here is to, to solve that problem. Um, and, you know, we, here we are in June with a, a childcare package that is heavily being trailed. And can they and can they only disappoint given the size of the problem? Because even if, if one was to reduce the, the childcare bill for a lot of families up and down the country by a significant percentage, it would still be their largest outgoing. So there is a risk that they are, you know, storing up a problem for themselves in the future here if they can if they can only end up disappointing. 
And, you know, the model here is just further public support for private childcare. I mean, I know that, you know, both Sinn Féin and the Labour Party have talked about a publicly funded childcare system, but that's not what is under discussion in government circles, if I'm correct. It's further subsidies for private childcare. You've been procreating at an impressive rate yourself in recent years, so you have an in-depth knowledge of this uh, situation. Yes, and, and next month is when the six-month anniversary of my second daughter's birth occurs and she will be sent into uh, full-time childcare, at which point our, our costs will more than double and we'll be facing a monthly bill in the region of what we estimate to be about €2,000. So I am one of those one of those families, or a member of one of those families. Luckily, you're fantastically well paid in the Irish Times. As is the case with with all journalists, but particularly in the Irish Times, handsomely remunerated. And um, look to, to to return to the point that you make, Pat. Yeah, they're not talking about a kind of fundamental shake up of the model for childcare provision. What they've done is it it's clever if it works. And and bear with me as, as I explain a little bit. The, the problem historically has been that as um, childcare subsidies or subsidies to parents have uh, increased over the years we've found that um, they've always been swallowed up by increasing fees. So what the government did in the last budget was introduce this concept of core funding, which is a new funding stream paid to the providers of childcare. Um, And they could only get access to this pot of money, which was to be used to improve the the terms and conditions of staff, uh, but also uh, help with their own running costs. But they could only get access to to this pot of money if they agreed to cap fees. So what the government hopes, uh, fees to parents that is, uh, what the government hopes to have done with that intervention and with that innovation is to effectively put a ceiling on it and therefore if they come along this year, as is the stated intent, with a big pot of money which will increase subsidies, then there's no way in which the industry can kind of, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a matching fashion, increase the fees and it just gets swallowed up and gets eaten up in this kind of inflationary cycle. So the hope is that, you know, at the point of access for families, you will see things starting to come down. And what are the chances of this working? I mean, that's all very well to design a package like that, an environment of low inflation, but we're now in a, an environment quite the opposite of, of almost runaway inflation, where childcare providers, presumably like everybody else, are under massive cost pressure. Yes, that's true. And we also have an ongoing process in the Workplace Relations Commission between uh, the childcare providers and unions representing childcare workers over the terms and conditions and uh, the, the possibility of a sectoral wage order governing um, paying conditions within that sector. So, look, I, the proof will be in the pudding. Nobody knows whether this will actually work, whether this concept will actually work, probably until, you know, around Christmas time of next year when the money is actually flowing through after the budget. I think it stands a reasonable chance. It looks on the face of it, you know, I don't see any obvious holes in it. But what I do expect is that um, that clamour for further supports uh, to combat inflationary pressures that are being experienced by the sector will only increase. And I suspect that we may end up getting a kind of increased in state involvement in childcare and, and childcare provision almost by stealth, as the state has made the political commitment to kind of backstop costs for parents and therefore will be asked to, to, to step up and intervene in other ways to alleviate the pressure on particularly small and medium-sized providers of childcare who seem to be particularly exposed and particularly challenged. We hear uh, often reports of you know scores and hundreds of, of, of providers planning to leave. And the last thing the government would like to face would be an, an abs- a, a further reduction in um, 
in access uh, because you already have horror stories of uh, working families up and in the country who can't get places for babies or young children and then that of course limits their uh, ability to participate in the workplace and, and then you have a kind of um, a, a snowball effect of, of negative uh, fallout from the, an employment point of view but also from tax revenue point of view and people spending long periods outside the workforce uh, becoming de-skilled and other various things that the government doesn't like to see. And just finally on this point, Jack, is it the government's intention to cut the cost of childcare for parents of young children or merely to stop the increases that they've seen over recent years? It's the former. It's it's definitely to cut it. Um, and we don't know the quantum, but, uh, you know, Roderick O'Gorman, I think, said... Earlier on this week, that you know, it won't it won't be fifty euro a month. So, I mean, the suggestion there being that fifty euro a month would be uh, effectively a, a drop in the ocean, given the size of the bill. So, if it's not fifty euro a month, you know, is it going to be hundreds of euro a month? Because it would really have to be hundreds of euro a month, and and to to make a meaningful difference, either immediately or over the period of uh, of the next budget between October twenty two and twenty three. And um, you know, that the obvious knock on from that is that you know the bigger the difference it will make if the transference mechanism they've designed works, uh, the bigger the difference it makes to add uh, the, the pocketbooks of families up and down the country, the more expensive it will be. And that brings us back to the, the, the kind of fundamental problem that the government is facing, which is that, you know, there's, there's a host of cost of living pressures that mainstream political parties have not been able to properly address over the last decade or more, housing, childcare, etc., etc., um, which have created a political vulnerability for that mainstream political class, which is being capitalised upon by Sinn Féin. That is now being exacerbated by... A, a host of Aravistas in the in the in this space, the end of COVID, associated childcare, associated uh, supply chain issues, the war in Ukraine, and the end of accommodative monetary policies, which are kind of changing the the the, the economic mood music and leading to a lot of fresh inflationary pressures. So the government and, and you, you see this. When you read the IFAC report, the Fiscal Advisory Council report that came out last week, the government is facing a huge amount of uncertainty and a lot of difficult choices, which um, mean that it has a particularly difficult balancing act to strike come Budget Day this year. And Harry, like these are political issues like cost of housing, cost of childcare and that, that they're not, you know, esoteric political debates. They're issues that have a real material impact on people's living standards and therefore for many of them on the way they view politics and the way they view the performance of the government parties. I mean, you know, Jack enumerated some of them there, but there's a whole host of those issues that are coming before the government now as it moves into that phase of the year just in advance of the August break, which kind of you know, there's an awful lot of, you know, budgetary pre-work being done at this time of the year that sort of frames the choices that it will have to make in September. You know, uh, I mean, you can think of things like the discussions that are going on with the public sector trade unions about uh, about pay increases and various other issues like that that are rumbling along a little bit below the radar now, but will surface very much on the radar after the August break. So I think you're right, Pat. The government is facing uh, what might be described as a scatological storm uh, in terms of a multiple of issues, most of which relate to the cost of living and housing crisis. So, uh, for example, in recent polls, those who are sampled 
they have overwhelmingly identified cost of living issues as the biggest issue. It's overtaken housing, it's overtaken the Ukrainian war, health and other issues as well. As I was driving up to Dundalk this morning, I'm up at a remote hub in Dundalk called Creative Spark today, doing a marking. And uh, that's one of the solutions the government, one of a plethora of solutions the government is trying to come up with in order to tackle all the issues that are facing it. As I was driving up this morning, uh, I bought diesel and uh, these, both diesel and petrol have crossed the psychological two euro mark, notwithstanding the incentives and the subsidies that have been supplied uh, by government. So when people see visual signs like that of uh, the cost of living crisis at the moment, it just spells bad news for the government. And the government is very limited in what, in what it can do in a lot of these policy areas, because a lot of these problems stem from wider global and international crises. But uh, inevitably, uh, they might only be partly responsible for the problem. But in the eyes of many punters, they're 100% responsible uh, when it comes to the blame. And that was a theme, actually, that chimed at both parliamentary party meetings last week, both the Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil one, where politicians were complaining that there were issues that were recurring like the passport application issue and also the chaos at Dublin Airport Authority that were not of their doing, that were created by executives who were very well compensated. But unfortunately, as far as the politicians were concerned, were not bearing any of the brunt of responsibility. And it was the politician what was getting the blame last week uh, for all these issues and the likes of Michael Ring, uh, in Fine Gael and Derek Leary in Fianna Fáil were very unhappy in, indeed uh, about that. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not just the cost of fuel, it's the cost of childcare, it's the cost of housing, it's the cost of rent, uh, it's the cost of the basic uh, shopping that people buy in their uh, supermarkets every week, groceries and other things. The costs have all risen exponentially. Now, there have been some savings that some families have had uh, because of the COVID restrictions. But I would suspect that those who have had savings uh, by the time autumn comes along, most of those savings will have been uh, exhausted and the government will be facing a huge problem. And there's very little the government can do in relation to some of the issues. It can do something in relation uh, to others. Uh, but it is going to face a torrid time uh, in the autumn unless it can come up with some very fixable solutions. And they will be a hard thing for the government to achieve. And Harry, where does all this leave? Those sort of spending pressures, which you know, you've enumerated across the system and the demands for more government support, for more uh, public spending. And, you know, I think you'll see pressure on many families increasing over the summer when the European Central Bank is expected to raise uh, interest rates. Uh, where does all that leave one of the central purposes of this government, the central projects of this government, which is the climate action agenda, which will also cost presumably tens of billions of euros in public money over uh, over the coming decade. Now, you know, this government runs 2025 uh, at, at the latest, but they're embarking on plans which will last unless they're changed by a future government and all. They will, they will last for the rest of the decade and they will be enormously expensive. So is there a danger for the Green Party that the priority that the government has afforded to those issues gets squeezed a little bit? 
Yeah, that's very difficult because there are so many competing priorities. And my own suspicion is that climate change is not going to get the the priority that parties like the Green Party wanted to have. Uh, All of the government parties, all of the opposition will make the correct sounds. They will talk about the need to save the planet. But when it comes to implementation, you will see a a marked reluctance. And we've seen that before uh, with huge resistance to uh, the increase uh, increase in relation to the price of fuel. We have seen farmers uh, resisting what are relatively modest changes in terms of their practices. And we've seen other lobby groups influence politicians to try to mollify uh, some of the effects. And if all of the Climate Action Plan were to be implemented, it would mean, uh, number one, it would be a very costly item. But secondly, it would mean very radical changes in the way that people do things in their lives. And I, I just don't see it happening within the lifetime of this of this government. I think there will be cold feet, especially uh, amongst the, uh, the rank and file of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil in relation to this. And I, 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 I do not see uh, the targets, the very lofty and ambitious targets that have been set out for 2030 uh, being uh, achieved. Now, maybe I'm being a little bit too pessimistic in terms of that, but just in terms of all the other competing priorities, I think that climate change, like it has in the past, will be the one that will lose out. Jack, that is something, I think, that would place the coalition under very great strain. Now, you know, we know, looking at history, that coalition governments very rarely fall apart because of the because in part the electoral consequences or the perceived electoral consequences of of doing so but if the if the greens don't get the policy mix that they want out of this government and for which they entered government in the first place that opens the potential it seems to me for a very serious crack in in what binds the three parties together yeah, it absolutely does, um, because part of the narrative that the Green Party is telling the electorate, uh, and perhaps more importantly in this instance, its own membership and its own parliamentary party, has been that it will, you know, tolerate things that you know the Green Party uh, may not traditionally be aligned with, and certainly some policies, um, the shape and size of which uh, alienate. Um, certain wings of uh, the Green Party to the extent that one of their TDs, uh, Nasa Horgan, has, has now had the whip removed from her twice, uh, junior ministers had the whip removed from him, and uh, a second TD, has Patrick Costello has had the whip removed from him as well, um, over issues that I suppose in a kind of crude sense could be grouped under, you know, social justice issues or issues that would be important to the social justice or progressive left wing of the Green Party. And and the the compact that Eamon Ryan has implicitly or explicitly struck with uh with his party has been that they will tolerate these things if they uh continue to achieve concrete, big concessions, agreements and policies on climate, because that is for the kind of ecological old old school wing of the Green Party, their whole raison d'etre, not only for being in government, but for existing, is, is to is to tackle the uh, 
the, 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 the systemic threat of climate change and the fundamental threat of climate change. So as long as they're able to continue explaining their presence in government on those terms... That's the bargain they've made with themselves. That's the, bar- that's yeah. the bargain they've made with themselves and, and there's, there's a coherence, there's an internal coherence to their continued participation in government. If that edifice starts to crumble if they're not able to achieve what they and what the leadership, and more importantly perhaps than the leadership concentrated in Naaman Ryan, um, but, you know, the, the the group of loyal TDs around him, the Marco Kasigs, you know, those, those kind of people, um, you know, if the, the Brian Leddens to a certain extent as well, you know, if they start to get wobbly and if they start to perceive rightly or wrongly that, you know, the support for the big moving parts of the climate agenda is ebbing away within the, the other two parties, then they start to question what is the point of being in government. And I think that, you know, because that core of the Green Mission has always not necessarily been the perpetuation of the Green Party, even though they are politicians and that is part of their makeup. It has been the achieve the it has been the 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 aim of achieving lasting change in climate policy. I think that they're they're perhaps less concerned in some ways about, you know, perpetuating their own their own existence. And, you know, there is there is a kind of hard ceiling amongst that kind of ecological core of the Green Party beyond which they won't kind of tolerate um you know, messing around by the other parties in government if that's what they perceive to be going on. So I do think that there is a, a limit beyond which, you know, they would, they would, that 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 group of, of Green Party TDs and that membership of the Green Party and the leadership itself would start to ask questions. What is the point of us being here? What are we achieving? And are we better off if we're not achieving the things that we consider to be truly fundamentally important? Are we better off out of government uh, and, and pulling down this coalition around us. And, and, and if that debate starts to be had, then I think that's one of the things, along with uh, the, the, the Guard investigation of Leo Varadkar, that could pull down this, um, this government before its time. Yeah, I think that's potentially the, one of the fissures of the coalition. And Harry, I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to talk about that over the coming weeks. But I, I just wanted to ask you briefly, if I can, about your new podcast series, which you've produced and is available on theirishtimes.com or wherever you get your podcasts at the moment. And this is your magnum opus on Gubu and the events that surrounded the arrest and conviction of Malcolm MacArthur several years ago, for many years ago. For those who have never heard of Gubu, give us a primer on it. Gubu stands for grotesque unprecedented, bizarre and unbelievable. And when all the events unfolded in 1982, uh, the then Taoiseach, Charles Hawley, held a press conference and he used uh, many adjectives to describe the very strange events that had occurred. And his arch enemy, Conor Cruz O'Brien, he distilled the adjectives down to four, uh, grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre and unprecedented. And he created an acronym uh, Gubu, uh, which was used to slight Hahi, and indeed was used uh, to slight Hahi uh, ever after. And uh, it became the, a, a new way to describe Irish politics, Gubu politics. It probably described uh, the 1980s version of Gombinism uh, in, in Irish, in, in Ireland. And uh, it's one that stuck. You still hear Gubu being mentioned from time to time. 
Okay, so what were the uh, events? Just give a brief outline of the events and, and how you treat them in the podcast series. Yeah, it, it's, it's a remarkable story and it brings together uh, both a kind of uh, a whodunit murder mystery and high politics. Uh, and that's what made it very unusual and so sensational at the time. And the protagonist was a, an aristocratic uh, man from County Meath who came from a well-to-do family. His name was Malcolm MacArthur, and he dressed in a very foppish way. Uh, he uh, hung around all the fashionable bars and clubs in Dublin during the 1970s, and he seemed to be a man of huge independent wealth. But the difficulty for him is, was the wealth ran out, and when it ran out, he came up with this uh, crazy and outlandish scheme uh, in which to make money. He had read about the provisional IRA carrying out armed robberies, throughout Ireland, and he decided that he'd go and do some of his own. So um, he was away living in Tenerife in the Canary Islands. He arrived back into Ireland in July 1982 and embarked on a killing spree in which he uh, killed two people, two young single people, in the most brutal and callous uh, manner. He went to the Phoenix Park and he essentially bludgeoned a young nurse called Bridie Gargan to death uh, just to get her car so that he could carry out his robberies. And then two days later, he travelled down to Edenderry in County Offaly, which was then a very quiet and peaceful town at a remove from Dublin. It's only 60 kilometres away, but it seemed far, far more distance from Dublin at the time. And he um, went down on the pretext of buying a gun of a young farmer called Donald Dunn. Uh, he, the young farmer demonstrated the gun and then Malcolm MacArthur took his gun and shot him and uh, stole his gun and stole his uh, car. And he came back to Dublin and that created a huge sensation. It was a very warm summer. Uh, it was very quiet uh, from a news point of view. And this story dominated the whole summer and set off a massive uh, murder hunt. And uh, to cut a very, very long story, which is seven episodes of a podcast short, uh, he was eventually captured in the apartment of Patrick Connolly, a senior counsel who was also a very good friend of Charlie Hawhey's and the Attorney General of that government. And that created a huge sensation uh, within Ireland and also created international headlines. Uh, Patrick Connolly made a, a, a terrible mistake by deciding to go on his holidays the day after Malcolm MacArthur was captured and he was chased all the way by reporters from Dublin to London and then on to New York where he had planned to begin his holidays. He came back and uh, he resigned immediately and Charlie Hawhey um, uh, held a press conference to try to clear up things but of course that compounded everything and gave rise to all the conspiracy theories and accusations that there was a cover-up or a stitch-up uh, and what have you and there are many strands uh, to the story. So the story itself is, is just a remarkable one and I, I suppose I was very lucky that it was done now rather than in a few years time because many of those who were active participants in it, were still alive and cogent and were able to give very, very powerful accounts of what had occurred. Well, I can highly recommend it, um, both for people who have a dim memory uh, of the time, uh, but also, you know, for people who weren't born uh, at the time as, as a kind of a window onto a different Ireland and obviously a, a appalling crimes, but also a compelling, a compelling story. Um, Harry, uh, episode five out today. It's episode uh, five today, episode six tomorrow, and the final episode is uh, available on Friday. 
It's great. Well, like this to say, I can highly recommend it. You'll get it wherever you get your podcasts or on irishtimes.com. And we will be back very shortly with Dennis Staunton from London. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. You're welcome back. Well, it seems there's never a dull moment in Westminster these days. As the great British public enjoyed a four-day bank holiday weekend to celebrate 70 years of Queen Elizabeth's reign, Tory MPs were rapidly sending letters to the chairman of the 1922 Committee of Backbenchers indicating they had no confidence in the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. On Monday night, the vote was held and Johnson won by 211 votes to 148. A victory, but a victory by such a narrow margin with over 40% of his own MPs now saying they want him gone, that it has widely been interpreted as the beginning of the end for him. Our London editor, Dennis Staunton, is on the job. Dennis, it's two days after uh, after the vote. Um, what's the atmosphere like in Westminster now? And where do you see things going over the, over the coming weeks? It's a long way until the summer break. There's a kind of a calm, uh, oddly enough. Uh, I think there was an expectation immediately after uh, the vote, because the vote had gone so badly for Boris Johnson, that you'd then see a succession of events quite quickly, like maybe some cabinet resignations or something like that. In fact, there hasn't been anything like that for now. But I don't think that necessarily means that uh, everybody has decided that, uh, as Boris Johnson would like them to do, to draw a line under these events and under questions about his leadership. I think questions about his leadership are still very, very much in the forefront of Tory MPs' minds. And the fact is that uh, 40%, more than 40% of his own MPs voted against him. And if you calculate the number of people, like say about 170 out of the 356 or whatever the number there are, are on the government payroll. So they're either ministers or junior ministers or bag carriers or envoys, or they've got some kind of connection to the government. And you'd have to presume that most of them would have voted for him, not all of them. But that means that he has definitely lost most of his backbenchers. And it could be anywhere between 60 and 75% of his backbenchers that have voted against uh, him continuing in office. So that's a difficult position for him to be in. Yeah, presumably. I was listening to Connor Burns, uh, the, the, the minister in the government, this morning on Morning Ireland. And he was giving the line that we've heard from some members of the government and from Boris Johnson's camp over recent days since the vote, saying that essentially, yes, of course, it wasn't a great result, but, you know, he won the vote and that's all that matters. And uh, now we go on and we put we put that behind us. Presumably all the people, such as Conor Burns, who was, you know, trying to run with that line uh, over recent days, they know that that is not true. They know that is not 
what is going to happen, that there is very significant damage done to the prime minister and nobody thinks that this is something that can simply be, you know, squared off and put behind him. Well, I suppose there are two facts, though, because uh, you know, in a way, Conor Burns is right in that the prime minister has won the vote. Uh, the rules are that if you, uh, if more people vote in favour of you than against you, then you win. And uh, so he got 211 votes to 148. And so he has won. And according to the rules as they currently are, he can't be challenged in the same way for another 12 months. So in that sense, he is the prime minister. He has the backing of a majority of his MPs. But as you say, the problem is that uh, he, having lost so many of them, uh, his authority has been damaged. So his authority is weaker now than it was last week before we had this. And already uh, there were questions about him because of the fallout from the parties, because of the fact that he's less popular than his party is, according to opinion polls, because of the whole idea that maybe his magic is starting to wear off. And so the fact that you now have 148 people who have actually uh, taken that step to say in a formal way, many of them not in public, but nonetheless, they actually have dipped their hands in the blood in a sense to say, this guy should go. They're not going to, uh, many of them, I would have thought, suddenly in the next few weeks decide, as a matter of fact, uh, this Boris Johnson, he's got his mojo back. He's actually fine because the fact that he has lost so much support in the party means that the very fight back that he would like to have, you know, this uh, plan for a load of policy initiatives, that's more difficult for him to implement because of the fact that he's ahead of a divided party. So I'll give you an example. The Northern Ireland Protocol, sometime this week, we're going to, or maybe next week, we don't know, uh, we're going to get legislation which will unilaterally override the central elements of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, this is going to make a lot of his backbenchers very happy, the Eurosceptics, the Brexiteers, and the European Research Group, and many others. But there are a lot of them it's going to make very unhappy. And uh, on the way out the other night after the vote, uh, the other night, I ran into a Tory MP who opposes what the government is doing on the protocol. And I said, are you going to vote against it? And he said, oh, yes, absolutely. And I said, who else? And he, without any effort at all, was able to, to name a whole load of people who he was absolutely certain were going to vote against it. And, of course, these people are emboldened by the fact that uh, they know that, uh, you know, in his current circumstances, there's not that much the prime minister can do to them. Like, if the prime minister was suddenly to decide to have a whole purge, remove the whip from... 10 or 12 of his MPs, that's reducing his majority even further and making his position even weaker. So in other words, you know, like the very uh, big, bold moves that he thinks he's got to do to please his backbenchers, it's going to alienate as many of them, or, or perhaps not as many of them, but certainly enough of them to cause him trouble. It seems to me there's two other difficulties that he faces in, in trying to recover. The first of them is that this isn't really a dispute within the Conservative Party over policy. It's over the personality and record and or, or maybe character of the Prime Minister is a better way uh, to, to put it. And that's not something that he can change with a slew of, uh, of initiatives. The second thing is that it seems to me we are now entering the phase just looking at the way these things have tended to play out, where in the past that we're, we're looking at the, the stage in which 
you know, the the vultures begin to circle over the uh, around the wounded animal and his potential successors will, you know, and one thinks of, you know, Liz Truss, perhaps more likely to push a hard line on the protocol issue now in order to secure the uh, support of Eurosceptic and ERG uh, MPs in any future leadership context. So as his authority is damaged, politics abhors a vacuum and as his authority disappears, others flock in uh, with the you know, with the intention of positioning themselves for a future leadership contest. And that means that, you know, the political agenda and the political discourse will be dominated by this for the foreseeable future, do you think? Yeah, I suppose one of the, uh, you know, what was regarded as one of uh, his strengths in a way and one of the strengths of his position before we had this vote was the fact that there was no obvious successor because of the fact that Rishi Sunak, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, appeared to be out of the running. I'm not sure if he is entirely out of the running now, but still, he appeared to be out of the running. And then there were various, um, you know, the various other candidates, there was something that a lot of people didn't like about them. So there was no obvious successor. But the fact that this vote has happened and that it's made clear that he is, you know, uh, in a position where he could, they could be getting rid of him sometime in the next while, and that you know, I would say many people now would say it's unlikely that he's going to lead them into the next election, maybe more unlikely than it is likely. That that means then that they will start to look at the possibilities. Now, none of them, apart from Jeremy Hunt, so Jeremy Hunt, a former cabinet minister who was the person who came second in the leadership election to Boris Johnson in 2019, he was one of the few really big beasts of the party that actually publicly called for a vote to get rid of Johnson and said that he was voting for change, that the Conservatives, if they didn't change, they were going to lose the next election. And he's quite clearly going to be a candidate. But none of the people in the government uh, are formally, uh, in fact, they're all being quite careful about it. It's pretty clear that someone like Liz Truss is likely to be a candidate if he goes. There are various others. So there is a certain amount of speculation about this. But in the meantime, he does have incumbency, so he can set the agenda. He can say, uh, you know, this week I'm going to talk about housing. And he can say, next week I'm going to talk about tax policy. The question is, what can he do after he's made the speech? So, for example, on housing, he wants to bring in some measures to make it easier for people to buy their own homes. But already his government, which has an 80-seat majority, has been unable to introduce planning reforms, which would have actually made it easier to build houses. Because people in the places that vote Conservative don't want any more houses built anywhere near them. There's quite enough houses in those places. Thank you very much, I think you're saying. Yeah, well, that's, that's what they say. They should build the houses somewhere else. And so, um, so that's, uh, you know, so, so that, so the planning reform is kind of gone. And then in the same way, he's, you know, at the moment, there's a big sort of chorus from the right of his party, people like David Frost, the former Brexit minister, saying that what we need is tax cuts. And the problem then with tax cuts is that you have to pay for them somehow. And if you're not going to pay for them by cutting uh, services, uh, and they don't really want to do that either, then you have to borrow money. And if you borrow money, then you're, uh, uh, you know, you're weakening your position. So all in all, you know, there are no particularly easy policy options. And, uh, you know, and this speculation is likely to continue. I think, by the way, that it's partly uh, the problem is about his personality and his character. 
But more fundamentally, it's about the fact that he's not popular anymore and that he seems to be a drag on the Conservatives' fortunes. And so I think what you're going to see later this month, when you've got two by-elections on the 23rd of June, one is in Wakefield, which is one of these constituencies that the Conservatives took from Labour in 2019. They'd never held it before. And another is in uh, Tiverton and Honiton down in Devon, which had a massive Conservative majority. They're likely to lose Wakefield to Labour, and they're likely to use, lose the seat in Devon to the Liberal Democrats. This will spook both sides of the party. It'll spook the Red Wall MPs who... Um, have won their seats from Labour. Usually most of them are on pretty small majorities. And it will also spook anybody down in the South and the southeast or the Southwest where the biggest threat is from the Liberal Democrats. Because uh, it will, you know, they'll just read across the swing. What would that mean for me? Well, as you know, Dennis, I hate putting you on the spot. However, do you think he last the year and if and when a leadership contest comes, I won't ask you to name a successor, but who do you think the real contenders are? I don't know how long he's going to last. I think that, uh, you know, I, I think I think he's probably, uh, he'll probably last the summer. I wouldn't necessarily put too much money on him lasting uh, beyond the autumn because not only are you going to have these by-elections, you also have the report by the Privileges Committee into all these parties. So they may investigate parties that have not yet been investigated, including some in his own private flat. And then you're also going to have all these political events where there'll be various rebellions where things will go wrong. And you also have coming up uh, in a few weeks a wave of rail strikes. So you've got lots of things that just make people unhappy. And if people are unhappy, their MPs are going to feel under pressure. So I think that the, you know lots of events could push him out the door by the end of the year. In terms of the runners and riders, I would say Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary. People talk about the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, is very popular, partly because of the uh, Ukraine war. Uh, another former... Soldier Tom Tugendhat, who's not in government, he's chairman of the uh, the Foreign Relations Committee. He uh, his name comes up a lot on the doorsteps. He's popular more on the sort of liberal wing. Jeremy Hunt will certainly be a candidate. And then the question would be if you're going to have people like Nadim Zahawi, who's the Education Secretary, again much talked about as a dark horse. Although none of these are very dark horses if we are already talking about them. And then the question, I think, the big question is: Does Rishi, Rishi Sunak feel as if he can actually now? Now, after a few months, uh, his fortunes are restored and he can go into the race. And if he does, where does he get his support from? Well, it sounds like you've got a fantastically entertaining few months ahead of you, Dennis. I'm uh, envious as ever, and we look forward to talking to you again about it. But for now, thanks very much. Thank you, Pat. And that's all from us for this week. From me, Pat Leahy, from our producer, Declan Conlon, and sound engineer, JJ Vernon. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> 